You almost broke me. <laughs> I almost broke because of all this. I was just... <laughs> just doing good radio. <laughs> My name is Nathan Pletta. I'm a game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. My name is Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. What are we talking about on the Design Games Podcast this week, Will? Nathan, this episode is rife with possibilities because we are talking about how to find, discover, flag, and design situations for your role-playing games. You've designed a game. Okay. For the sake of argument. Sure. Does it have fighter pilots in it? Yes. Great. They can't go to sleep. Awesome. I'm, I'm listening. Okay. You've made a bunch of principal decisions about setting. Mm-hmm. You have a bunch of context to pull in for whatever you need at the table at any given time. You have resolution. You have reward cycles. You have strong characters that change over time. All this great stuff. What do you do now? As a designer or in the game? These two things interrelate, but I do think it's the responsibility of the designer to provide at least some way for an individual table to answer that question. Right on. Yeah, right. I think there's um, there are a lot of RPGs that do it almost implicitly or that do it starting with setting. This is where setting and gameplay really sync up. Despite what we've been saying about gameplay not instantly or easily answering questions that are posed by the game, not offering easy outs to hard questions that the game wants to pose. Right. This is kind of where they sync up. I mean, the broadest, uh, one of the big bold examples is that, so I need a situation in Shadowrun. So I get hired to go break into a place and steal stuff. Mm-hmm. Right. Very easy situation. If I'm at a loss, I can always fall back to that. D&D, I can always just say there's a hole in the ground, steps descend into it. There's monsters and treasure in there. Right. And part of that is premise. It's premise and also in D&D in particular grows out of the reward cycle. Who knows which comes first, right? But During the design process. During the design yeah. process. Yeah. But if, if you, you build a reward cycle that's about killing things and taking their stuff, then the situation of there are things to kill and they have stuff for you to take right. kind of is a naturally emergent set. However, as we can see by the existence of things like skills and modules and maps of grand kingdoms Mm -hmm. and books of NPCs and all that kind of stuff. There's more to it than that. As with so many things, there's another continuum here of how much front-loaded specific situation you are designing into the game from a game that is essentially a situation, Right. which because it's on top of my mind because I've been playing it, I'm going to throw out the Mountain Witch again as an example where... The premise of the game is also the a, a rich, vibrant situation. The, the pitch, right, is like you're going up the mountain to face Oyanma, the mountain witch. But the actual situation is embedded in character creation where you specifically say why you're a ronin and not a samurai anymore. You were a samurai and now you're not. And then why you need the money that is being offered for the witch's head. Right. Right. And then also the dark fate. Like those three things together create the, the pregnancy of the mm-hmm. situation and start and then create the, the the fault lines that the rest of the game is all about poking at. And you can see in there, right, without knowing necessarily, maybe you do, I, I don't, but uh, and this is the literal order in which some of these things were built, but that it's possible, for example, that I want to do a game about Ronin Samurai going up a mountain to fight a witch. And I know I want it to be about trust. 
Hmm. Well, so I've got that. So while doing that, I go to mechanics and say, I want to, I want the, the trust to be a mechanic. So I devise a mechanic to make that trust toothy and interactive and fascinating and fun. And while designing that mechanic into the setting in a way that right. is really robust and, and engages with everything that I'm trying to make it about. Like one of the things I love about Mountain Witch and that I think that I wish or that I should say I hope more games going forward continue to, and, and games are, but uh, we can't do it too much, I don't think, is making RPGs kind of like we make board games. And that it's right. not an RPG about fighting wars. It's an RPG about this specific battle in history mm -hmm. or, a, a, you know, a, a board game about this specific battle in history or this island's trade, history of trade or whatever it is. We can make RPGs like that too in this mountain, which is a sterling example of it. That means that you're not designing for nearly as many potential situations or flavors of situations because even in the in the mountain witch right even if oddball kind of adventure situations come up and, and often mm -hmm. they do they will still be about trust on some level because right. the game is built and that's what's so ingenious about the way its mechanics and its mm. setting combine to form situations like for for example if your character dies you still as a player can use the trust mechanics to aid or actually just to aid the survivors Mm -hmm. And you're encouraged to figure out what that means, whether that's the memory of your character or your ghost is literally still there or right. whatever works for the, the situation. Which which creates that or, or honors, I think, lots of situations. That, that's a great example for how the mechanics are doing something very specific once you're dead. The trust mechanic, like you can only use it to aid. Right. But how you portray that and so therefore what the situation is, the mechanic is going to stay the same. But you can, because of the setting that you've built and how the situation absorbs both mechanics and setting. So you're like, can I be a ghost for one scene and talk as a literal ghost? You go, sure, this setting allows that. That's no problem. Yeah. It doesn't break anything. There's, there are settings in which that, of course, would be like allowable, but but a but a bigger deal. Like, mm -hmm. like it would be a profound game-changing or setting-changing thing. You're the first ghost we've been able to prove exists. So for the sake of argument, if that's one, and I don't think it necessarily is, but yeah. if that's one end or near one end of the spectrum. And then at the other end, I guess, would be something like like a GURPS, like without any specific books, right? Like where it's oh, kind see. of just the the GURPS rules in the one book, third or fourth edition. And so there's a bunch of stuff about making characters and fighting and trying to get what you want without fighting. And, right. you know, a couple kind of things, kind of air quotes, standard game things around the edges. And a lot of the choices in there imply some level, but like you choose, but you're supposed to choose a setting, right. choose the actual, like, what do the characters do? Why are they together? Who are the antagonists? Like that's all GM decision making for the most part. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would, I would say player just including the GM because there are sure. campaigns that do that. But yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of player, not system decided, mm -hmm. not designer decided. Right. Yeah. And that's a choice. Yeah. Right. To, to kind of disclaim specificity and kind of say this game does this on a mechanical level. As an example of what the mechanical level, how the mechanical level can produce a situation. Or actually the Dragon Age and Fantasy Age systems do this really well. So the situation is if you have, you know, the dice align a certain way, you get stunt points and those stunt points can be spent on a bunch of stuff. Okay. So the dice aligning is a thing that will likely happen occasionally. Mm-hmm. Just given the odds in three six-sided dice. The stunt points suggest how to dramatize and enact situation. The situation is you've done something awesome. Something something unusual is about to happen. Mm -hmm. And you can do, you can disarm somebody, you can push them off a cliff, you can steal their sword, you can cut off their head, whatever, right? Depending on how many points you get. That's a mechanics-born situation that means one thing if we have no fiction to go with it. And it means more if we have fiction and setting or flavor to go with it. Sometimes I think about big S versus small S, right? Yeah. Where, where big S situation is kind of the, what, what's putting characters into motion? What's giving you reasons to make certain decisions? Yeah. Right? Why do I decide, like as a player, why, why do I decide that my character is going to work with these other characters rather mm -hmm. than work against them? 
Like that is a function of, or it can be a function of big S kind of situation where a party of adventurers going into a dungeon. So I'm going to work with them or, you know, we're a bunch of spies and none of us know who's working for who. So then that's a different way for me to position my character versus other characters. Right. And a way to answer, to have a pool of many answers to draw from, but to make it easier to select which possible answers Mm -hmm. you want to use to answer each small situation. So then like the small situations or my moment to moment things are from you all walk into the bar, right? Right. To like you make this role in Dragon Age and now you have these stunt points and whether you're in the middle of a combat or the middle of a conversation, those are going to drive your your decision making in different ways. Because what I'm thinking of is we have the spectrum, which is totally true. We have this continuum. The ends of the continuum feed into a common central place, which is that you can have situation without mechanics, which is fiction. Mm-hmm. That just happens. I mean, we do that. Every, we do that in lots of media, <laughs> or um, or the the systemless setting book, right? Right. Like here yeah. are a bunch of adventure hooks for whatever right. game you're running. Wh- whether they're done as bullet points or they're done as like I'm thinking in part like one of the big situation first places that's not mechanical is Harn, which mm-hmm. is a, a detailed fantasy setting full of edge cases and nuance and complex ways in which cultures interact. And to its credit, just because that's the nature, that's who this game is serving. None of it is mechanically toothy in the same way that we that Mountain Witch is. Mm-hmm. Where its themes are, there it can contain so many themes that it, a trust mechanic would narrow the game. And part of the beauty of Mountain Witch is that it's narrow. And part of the beauty of Harn is that it is overwhelmingly wide. And so that notion where you have the fictional situation, which I don't, I think comes in both big S and small S, and you have mechanical situation, which comes in both big S and small S. Mm-hmm. And my personal opinion is that the big S's should align and the small S's can kind of diverge. And that's not that's not sure. a rule, but that's kind of as an example, it's where I start. Mm-hmm. So the Mountain Witch, your big S is aligned. There's a mountain and a witch, and the game is about going and doing that and the characters are all pointed directly at that goal in right. character creation then all the little s situations come under that mm-hmm. just bringing in hard and like that kind of makes me think of a, a may not a midpoint but like a blending of these yeah. poles it would be like a hero quest glorantha yes. right where there's a huge world there's all this stuff going on but if i just sit down and say all right well we're going to play hero quest it's going to be set in glorantha make your character right right like that's not enough to go on <laughs> right right but when you make your character, uh, at least in the, I'm thinking of the versions that I've played, which have always been kind of filtered through the person actually making it happen. Sure. So it's kind of Hero Wars, Hero Early Edition Hero Quest, where the your your character build depends very strongly on where they physically are in Glorantha and what traditions they're part of, what cult they're part of, what their tribe or family is, you know, what kind of person they are. Yeah. So like something in the Dragon Pass is very different than something in the the Orlanthi. I don't know. I can't recall all the names right now. But anyone who knows Glorantha stuff kind of probably have an idea of what I'm talking about, where there's there's a bunch of different literal territories and each one has a different set of intersecting influences. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of put an arrow through any of these different intersecting layers to, to make your character. Character classes is an element in situation, mm-hmm. which is that if we have no spellcasters, right, different situations play out differently, and so different situations might be more or less likely to come up. And the game kind of doesn't say that outright in the notion mm-hmm. that this monster will destroy a party with no spellcasters, or spellcasters will destroy this monster. Right, but this stuff is emergent; you can find it. So maybe a point of departure for thinking about this here is: what if you take your game and say, when there are no spellcasters here? is what the GM should do or here are the here here are the here are the parts that the GM has to put together for when the players are like oh no none of us want to play a wizard go ahead and 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 discard this stuff 
Right. Remove the following monsters from the deck. Right. And yeah. and build on this stuff. And I think it's something that, you know, a lot of people kind of instinctively mm-hmm. do, right? Like you want to know kind of what everyone's playing. And if no one's playing a thief, then it's like, all right, well, I guess my idea for this trap filled basement, maybe I'll tone that down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or I'm going to make it so apparent that they have to like go hire a thief. As a designer, how do you flag stuff like that? and mm-hmm. make it apparent for GMs who are going to be running your game or for players who are going to be picking up your game and, and looking at their options. You know, how do you how do you say, oh, it's okay if no one plays a wizard? That was one of those things I was thinking about is the recognize was the word I was thinking. I think flag is better, but I was thinking, mm. how do you make situation recognizable in a giant book of fiction in a way that, for example, in in... in in prose fiction, in a novel, you do it through dramatic cues that the that the audience is to some degree familiar with. Like shorter sentences imply faster rhythm. You can spend more time describing a thing. You, you know, pacing is, and and such where it's which is pre done. It's done for you as the audience. But in games or in, in a world book, how do you say this is a situation? And right now, I'm just talking about how the situation came to be. And I think that's the twofold answer is one is, I mean, obviously you can do things. Some of the the, the good techniques for, for flagging situation are bullet points, adventure seeds as a concept. Adventure seeds often, right, are just yeah. packages of semi-related lore mm-hmm. that you say, the fact that these that these three things are true all at the same time means that a situation occurs, is, mm-hmm. is, is ripe for action. In addition to the bullet points, you, you can try to make re- a situation recognizable so that it is discoverable as opposed to do- the discovery done for you. So when you list mm-hmm. bullet points, you say, these are situations. And then when they're discoverable, that in itself, I think, comes in kind of two depths. One is that I make it obviously discoverable and that I phrase two sentences the same way. I put them next to each other or I do two one-line paragraphs. Mm-hmm. We, th- that, those things are paired in a way. But more often, it's to realize that that situation is also emergent, like lots, like so much gameplay, mm-hmm. where players will see different pieces of information, pages or books apart, and think, oh, there's a situation here. And that's part of the fun of being a, a player or a GM, right, is, is pulling situation out. And then I think part of the way that you flag that is by saying very strongly, and this goes back to what we talked about in premise and such, but goes mm-hmm. saying very strongly what the game is about. So that, for example, if I find a situation, it's possible that the, that the Duke is a changeling and the game has nothing special about like, it doesn't, have, it doesn't have stats for other changelings. It doesn't tell me changelings are afraid of cold iron. Or it doesn't say changelings mm-hmm. can only be slain by whatever. And we find out the Duke is evil. You know what I mean? Like, and when I say supported, I don't mean legal. I don't mean it's not like rallied for, right, right. but there's nothing to do to, to make that situation touch those mechanics because mm-hmm. the mechanics don't exist. There's going to be two two spheres, right? Like one is going to be, as a designer, here's what I want to see happen in this game, right? And you can telegraph it with setting and you can give it a, give it a backbone with mechanics mm-hmm. and then you kind of put a face on it with your Insomniac mm-hmm. pilots, right? And here are the complications. Here's a table of complications that arise. Right. And when you fail this certain kind of role, here's, you know, what happens to your commander, those kinds of things. Right. And then there's the sphere of given all this information, what else, as you say, like what else are our players going to be inspired by and say, oh, I want to do this. And then I guess the question is without trying to anticipate, like you don't want to try and anticipate every single thing, because I think that way lies dreary, endless, tearing your hair out. And also world books that are that ha- that are so comprehensive that it is just like, I mean, it's like trying to re- read all of human history in right, a book. Right, yeah. But what you can do is say, when players are inspired to do something else, what happens? Mm-hmm. Is that supported in a way that guides you back into the... The, the main arc that you're trying to, to go for, the, the themes and the play experience? Is it just simply left as undiscovered country and you just put a sign there that says, beware, have fun, let me know how it goes? Right. Do, you, do you put something that says, if you run into situations that are not covered by these rules, like 
you are going outside the bounds and here's how to reset. Oh, right. You know, like how, how hard of a line do you draw? And I think this is something that it's kind of hard to just like put into a sentence. Right. Right. And the more you talk about it, the, the, the more you can make, be talking about something your game's not about. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, like how much, because how much time do you really want to spend on like trying to tell people how not to play your game? At what point have you accidentally written rules about, so this game isn't about the, if your characters get into a, a, a romance back at the barracks or they crash and meet people in the countryside and spend mm-hmm. a weekend teaching their kids about how to defend themselves and don't have rules for it, or you spend so much time writing about that you've made a system for it, right. now the game is about fighter pilots who crash and teach families how to defend themselves. Right. <laughs> that's a, that's another choice you make, right, of like how much you just depend on the, the, the good faith of people playing the game to be like, huh, I guess this isn't really covered by this game. Whatever, you know, and they just keep doing what they're doing. Right. Or where do you... Uh, say like here's a general system for resolving other conflicts the potential danger here i guess that i that i think about mm-hmm. is when you start getting into trying to head off certain oh, behaviors yeah. which we've kind of talked about before and in, in other contexts but if you're like oh but people could play this in in this way that is wrong or that I do not want people to that I'm just not going to that I'm just not going to provide material for right even, even that yeah yes maybe that's a time where where that means that it's time for you to, to sharpen up some other parts of the game to be more specifically oriented towards what you do want right uh, the sharpen is a great point here I, I, because I think it's also about d- better defining the situation so that mm-hmm. if they leave the mountain you go so whenever you want to play mountain which again you'll be back on the mountain right right and does it make it clear what is and is not kind of in the game mm-hmm. but for example our, with our insomniac fighter pilot if you if you just decide i'm just going to fly randomly west mm-hmm. and then i'm going to have an adventure when i'm adrift in the ocean mm-hmm. right on the one hand freeform is a thing players they, players and gyms have all kinds of power to do stuff but again the more you talk about it right so i think part of that is where you sharpen up the situation in terms of that's sort of what i mean by having the fiction draw them in which is yeah. that if the reward cycle is that you get stuff from downing german fighter pilots mm-hmm. and not xp from anything else oh, or whatever yeah. it is right that mm-hmm. kind of thing lures them into a direction in the fiction so that's a really good point where Talking about generic or general rewards versus specific right. ones can be one way to, where you want to sync up the situations in play with the overall project of the game. For example, if our Insomniac Fire Pilots, you get an experience tick every time you fly on a mission right. versus you get an experience tick every time you return to your base. Now you have two different sets of potential situations that you, the players are gonna, gonna be going for. Because if you just get to get experience just for flying, then you better have a bunch of stuff for here's all the different things you do when right. you fly. While if the experience is for returning to base, then here are all the different things that happen when you return to base. Like here's why that's important. Here's why that matters. I'm imagining uh, uh, hours logged the, at the in, in the air as XP and right. how players are like, well, I did the mission, but I'm not going back yet because I still have fuel. Why? I just want the XP. I just want the XP. <laughs> or or uh, when you return to base, these things happen that, that pick one of these XP or whatever, or these yeah. kinds of things that aren't just a matter of if you survive the mission. Mm-hmm. But if you make it home, that that hands off from one leg of the game to another leg of the game. Mm-hmm. Like Night Witches does this well. Uh, the forthcoming Atlas Reckoning does this really well where it has on and off mission kind of things going right. on. And both of them have this, right? Where they have kind of two different levels of play artfully done so that it creates a rhythm and draws you constantly back from one to the other, which I think almost is, it just kind of keeps players, I don't want to say busy because it's so much fun. It's not busy work, but it keeps you engaged to such an extent that moving, you're always looking forward to the next phase. And it means that you're right. not you're not roaming off trying to find submarines to, to blow up 
just because you're bored. Um, and that's one of the things with having a, a game that's rife with interlocking situations in a way that if I say, well, we're in this fight and I'm not a, I'm not a fighter. I, mean, I use all my spells. But I know that in the downtime, wizards have a thing they can do. Then I'll be like, I want to survive and I want us to survive so we can do the downtime so I can do my thing, reset, and then we can all do combat again together. This is where situation, I think, actually comes up a lot. Is, is this a situation when for an change? encounter? Is this a situation for an adventure? Is this a situation mm -hmm. for a session? Yeah. Right, because yeah, they, when does it change? Because yeah. they nest and then change over time. Yeah. I'm imagining a game which, because I've, I've worked on one of these and tried to get it to work, where you're detectives. So the detection is, a, is an adventure. And whether or not the person goes to jail is a role at the end of the session or a role at the end of the case. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's an example for where what the game is about versus what the game kind of covers, but isn't so much about. Right. And again, diff a different game would nest that and link that totally differently. Mm -hmm. I think another way to think about this is who does the situation come from? Does it come from the designer as the person writing a thing or the or the adventure writer or the module creator right like right. as does it come from an author in a text of some kind does it come from uh the players as an entity which in might like a world building game or a game that has world building elements right part of that often involves what's the specific situation in this world mm -hmm. that we're concerned about and that's like a table level discussion and maybe there's mechanics and structure how that's decided does it come from an individual person running the game or an individual person at the table or does it emerge out of the choices that people make about other things right Can you give me an example of that i guess i'm still thinking of like if no one plays a wizard mm then it's kind of a poor move to then do an entire magical creature that you need spells to overcome mm -hmm. premise for, for the adventure, right? Unless that's Imagine the tension that you're trying, unless the game is a specific game is about how do you overcome this thing when you don't have a specialist. I was saying, imagine a situation where the players all choose to make fighters and then the players all choose to take on a monster that needs magic to be overcome so that they can get better XP for it or something. Sure. Right, exactly. That, that's a difference between the different stages and whether or not what we assume about who's making the decisions right. when. Yeah, so like at all those levels, this game is a game where you're all fighters with no magical ability that have to fight a magical creature. That's a decision made by the designer. Right. Right. This is a game where we have established as a, as a group that our world is one in which there's only one magical creature hmm. and it is running rampant. And now, oh, what if we're all creature catchers who don't have magic and we have to figure out how to take care of this problem? Or I sit down to run this game. I'm like, all right, here's, you know, I prepped this adventure and uh, uh, Sarah was playing our wizard, but she can't make it for this cycle. So, oh, Will, what did you make? Oh, I made a thief. Oh, so that means there's no, no one has a wizard. No one, no one has spells. <laughs> All right, let me uh, give me one second. You know, like uh, right or a world in which the the players can pick. You know, they've got three adventures kind of that they've learned about, mm -hmm. and they pick. Let's go on this uh, this one, and the GM knows, or the uh, or the GM or the designer knew first, mm -hmm. but whatever. But that that's the trap filled adventure, and you don't have a thief, right. and you, but they don't know that yet, or they mm -hmm. do know that, and they and they like Guess the challenge. They'll find out. Um, and it, those are in those intersections. That's almost like meta situation, right? Those are intersections of the decision making mm -hmm. that create a situation. Like the the GM thought that the, that you were, that the wizard was going to be here this week. Somebody would be a wizard, and then you go, "Give me a minute," because right. you didn't you weren't able to visualize mm -hmm. that we weren't going to have a wizard. Well, and then I guess the, the the next level of that is okay. All four of you picked character type A. So when I have four of characters type A, that equals magical creature. They have to figure out how to overcome it because no character type A has magic. Right. Right. Like there's some kind of programmatic or or designed relationship between player choices of character, of powers that they're taking, of ancestral homelands that they're from or or whatever. And then the the building blocks that 
the situation is then built out of. First of all, that idea of that kind of programmatic structure for a game that is about kind of classical fantasy adventure, but with only one magical monster running around in a very small number of wizards or something, sure. I will play that game. <laughs> I would love that game. It's like, we're not going to know until you guys pick characters how hard this is going to be or what flavor it's going to be, right? If we have a classically balanced party, then you're facing a dragon. But if it's all fighters, then we're facing a... Horde of orcs. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. Or uh, even if the, there are five wizards in the campaign setting and they can't make more wizards. Yeah. So if you all play wizards, that's the five of them. Mm-hmm. And if you start dying, then we're going to run out of wizards. But if you make fighters and then you re- and then your fighters start dying and you replace one fighter with a wizard, like right. now they become a resource. So just depending on, on what mix you have and that, that tells you what of the other things exist in the world. What questions are which players allowed to pose? Mm-hmm. And in this case, or I should say participants, because I'm including the designer and the adventure writer and stuff in this, do you situations, I think are not well-framed situations, do you survive the dragon? And you can do that, that's, but that's not the situation, that's inside a situation more often. I think, how do you survive the dragon is a better way to frame and to think about a situation to find out if your game is engaging with it, because if the notion is, how do you survive a dragon? By using this one spell, survive dragon, is the only way in the game to do that. And there are only five magic issues in the setting, right? Like suddenly mm-hmm. you, you can kind of visualize what, how many options you're talking about, how many options you're giving the players, how hard they are to get, how they interact with the reward cycles. Mm-hmm. For example, and, and again, the kind of traditional fantasy adventure game, how do you survive this monster is a complex combination of arrow counts, sword swings, spells cast, healing potions, right? That is understandable and perceivable, but not predictable because of the dice. Mm-hmm. But if you have a game in which it's, how do you survive this orc horde? There are two stats in this game. That can be fine for a certain number of plays, generally, like we've talked about before, like mm-hmm. how much life does that question have in it? Sure. Or contrary, how do you survive? Each of you has two stats and they're all different. Mm-hmm. Or how do you survive this a dragon burning your village? How do you save your village from a dragon attacking? And, the, and, the, and imagine which the resource is simply... We roll a dice and that's how many characters will die and how do we decide which characters die? Sure. These kinds of things. So the situation is essentially you can have the same situation across very different games that is resolved, again, in sort of a question of resolution of uh, how fine-grained it is. So I think that's a that's another element where your mechanical design decisions need to be considered in light of what are the typical kinds of situations we're going to be engaging with in play. Exactly. Like at what scale do mechanics resolve things? At what scale do reward mechanisms kick in? For every 10 dragons you kill. Sorry, go ahead. Right. We've mentioned 316 before. Oh, yeah. Where the combat mechanics of your of your space marines fighting evil alien bugs don't tell you whether you can hit one or whether you kill one, but rather how many you kill. Right. Right. And the the rest of the system is concerned with other things about your overall kind of rank and progress and whether your what you do in combat is enough to fulfill the goals of the, uh, you know, the overarching goals of your project to clean all the evil aliens out of these planets. Mm-hmm. And that's all nested within why are we just destroying these sentient creatures on all these planets? <laughs> right. right? And, and you kind of march through these levels of question as you progress through the cycles of of different situations. And that's very programmed where it's like, here's a planet, here's the kind of alien that's on it. And then it goes back to the players about like, how hard is it going to be? How much damage are we going to take, basically? Right. In order to cleanse this world. And then every so often the question comes up, what weapon are we willing to use to do this thing? And some players, that question doesn't come up. 
right? Some groups, it's a much more of a, I mean, lighthearted is the wrong word, but much more of a uh, shoot them up, let's make up some cool space marines and go kill a bunch of aliens. And then some groups, when that question comes up, it is it is latched onto and becomes the central question of play. I've always thought, and, and my play experiences with 316 bore this out, mm-hmm. I've always felt that 316 does a great thing where because the bug fighting mechanism and the program of the of the longer kind of the campaign essentially yeah the way they interact is that there's a question as to how much you as a player and then therefore your character think about the big picture the big picture and the small picture are like they're in contact but they don't reach inside each other very much in a really great way because what it does is it creates a situation where you can kind of pretend well that's above my pay grade mm-hmm but what it does is it so it by just posing the two of them next to each other like so close that you can't get between you're in one or the other you can't you're always between them you're always mixed up in it you can't just say i absolve myself of this half of the game with the you know with this consequence mm-hmm. you can kind of do it in play almost but you can't not think about it you're going to be in the car going i nuked a bunch of I'm, I destroyed a whole planet today. Or well, whatever. and mechanically, as you as you gain ranks, you start to have more yeah. fictional decision making power right. about that longer arc. I, that's true. I guess that's, that's that's really where you kind of migrate from one to the yeah. other. But, but what it does is it, by putting them next to each other, it still calls them into question over and over again as you oh, yeah. gain ranks, so that well, you answer that question in different ways. And also, not not everyone necessarily does that. Yeah, like it's possible for one person to end up kind of getting all the rank upgrades if i remember I think right so yeah so it's possible for like me to play a, a, a private the entire game and for your guy to, to shoot up to lieutenant really quick and then have his finger on the button right right and right. then we you know have some kind of character interaction about like pay grade and who makes the decision and is it right and oh, well i stuff. just stand here while you push that button right yeah Any two things you put together potentially create situation. Mm-hmm. And this is true in prose. This is true in game design. And so these kind of contrasts and juxtapositions become really interesting. And they're great for helping with your premise and your elevator pitch. And again, they're one of those things that you come back and check on. You, you devise your setting or start devising your setting. And then you see what are the situations and how do they interact with my mechanics. And then from there, go back to the setting. And then from there, go back to the premise. And you're always revising everything. The notion, for example, if I say plums deify, which I'm stealing from Stephen King's book on writing. Well, there's a situation immediately if I know that plums will make me a god. So I go, great, where are the plums, right? There's mm-hmm. potential. Two things, this has to be two words, but it could be if it's two things, like the letter on the mantelpiece or a gun in a mailbox. Mm-hmm. We immediately kind of start thinking, how, either how did this come to be? So you can have a game that's investigative, going, where did this gun come from? Mm-hmm. Or if the gun has a note on it and postage, and you're like, what am I supposed to do with this gun? <laughs> what is right. this gun for, right? And so that's a situation that's not a great game situation because it, it points in too many directions. As an example, I go back to the mountain witch in which that points specifically, a mountain is a thing that only has one peak. A mountain mm-hmm. has a top and a wide bottom. So it's naturally a great plot director. Right. Right, it's a shape of, of it's a Freytax pyramid, Mm-hmm. in Japanese mythology form. When you can create situations as both a designer and a GM and as a player that help a trajectory appear, but have the breadth so that it's not a matter of one path to that point. One of the examples that I use that I feel like doesn't get enough coverage is the fact that every character class in D&D has the potential to be a situation that is almost mm-hmm. never really used. Um, the situation is, how are you going to get to level 20? That's a situation. And the game is a massive interaction. And that situation itself was never really played out. And it has all these other components, interacts with so much of the rest of the game for you to tell how am I going to get to level to the next level I would actually counter with it's not that how do I get to, t- to level 20 is a situation it's that that's that's a question being asked by the yeah by the the, the mechanics of the game right. right right and then answering that question involves going through a series of these nested situations at various levels starting from you and your cohort of murder hobos meet in an inn 
but maybe after level level two, level three, then that changes, you know, depending on the context of what you've accomplished so far in the game and what the the new adventure that came out that the the DM's really excited to run. And, <laughs> right, right. And the the wizard made this awesome random roll with the the wand of many things and now has right. like this this cool new spell that they want to use. And that's what I'm getting at in terms of the number of ways that you find situation or answers to a situation. Is the question of of how do I get to level twenty is I think it is, I, for me I. I would consider a situation because situation and question are, are so overlapping. Sure, but sure, it's, a, sure. it's not a good situation because there are too many answers, mm-hmm. right? So I need to start winning it down. And the way you winning it down is by saying, okay, well, you're one of five fighters in an inn looking for a magic monster. Yeah. And as you start to winnow it down, you, the trick is to, you can go too far, right? Which is the thing where you go, so you're one of five adventures in, a, in an inn looking for a mystical monster and there's only one way to find it and you so roll d20 once okay you won you have a 50 50 chance if you roll an odd number the monster kills you that's again kind of a, where you can work this dial this lever right how do i decide how to answer that question mm-hmm. and so the thing is to say i think how much does the setting and the mechanic unroll a bundle of tools yeah and say here are all your tools and you go, well that's god that's so many and you go yes but in this encounter you can only use the red ones mm. or in this encounter the blue ones are, are sexier or <laughs> they, they do more damage or they, yeah. they're more provocative or whatever it is. The different encounters, different situations mm-hmm. remix the tool, the same toolkit in ways to add mileage to play. Mm-hmm. This is one of those things that I think about the adventure design and then I make sure that the game will deliver, will we'll, we'll help the GMs and the players build those situations. But is what tools are missing from the player's kit when I say to them, can you rob this place before the clock strikes midnight? Mm-hmm. And I go, well, I don't have a timekeeping mechanic or whatever, or I don't have I don't have a relationship between player action and the hour mm-hmm. or whatever it is. So this gets back to something I, I wanted to make sure to, to talk about, which mm-hmm. was this all hooks back into that uh, inspirational idea, right? That, that scene or that picture in your mind or that description or example of play. Yeah. Whatever that that thing that still is at that root of why are you making this game? A good place to figure out other things is how do I make that scene happen? What's that? And that's that situation, right? Mm-hmm. Doing this game, there's this time limit to rob this place. I had all these ideas. Here's all the stuff. Oh, right. I haven't actually figured out how this time limit thing works. Is that a setting thing? Is that a purely mechanical thing? Is that driven by character selection? Right. All those things, when you're going through revision process and kind of revisiting what you were looking for in the first place, mm-hmm. is this scenario that I'm writing for my play tests? Is this going to generate the scene that I had in my head? Right. right? Is, is it still possible? Is it still fun? And right. is it still as dramatic in the right. way I wanted it to be? Yeah. But then the other thing is like, all right, I have all this framework. It's great. I have the setting elements that I like. I have these ways to make characters. What do we do when we sit down? What does someone else do that's not me when they sit down with my game? Right. Uh, well, maybe I should go ahead and make sure that they can have this scene that I already thought of. Yeah. Right. You're absolutely right. And the two things that makes me think of are one, so you can guide people to the intersections like you're talking about. If you have all this stuff mm-hmm. and you want to make sure that certain things happen, you guide them to the places where those where the theme and the mechanics or the two mechanics or the mechanic and the setting interact, intersect. And one way to do that, of course, is to say you will level up when you get there. So, well, let's get there. Mm-hmm. Another way to do that is to say, okay, so the game starts and you're at this intersection. Right. Um, like Mountain Witch sort of does that, right? Which is, so you're there's a mountain and there's a witch and yeah. you're, you're going to go up it. Mm-hmm. And the character creation feeds into that. But I think of games, for example, and there's, this is very popular, I feel like, in modern LARP in a great way, which is that instead of making the game about getting to a place, it's mm-hmm. a game about everything that happens in that place. We right. start there. Yeah. And then the game, right? And RPGs can do this, can do mm-hmm. similar things. And if you think of the game as just a, as a, as again, a massive possible set of interactions, I often go, so what happens if these two rules happen at the same time? Sure, if, if the, sure. And all these situations. And then I start capping off the ones that I'm like, you know what? They're not going to help make that, that, insp- that inspiring mm-hmm. moment happen. Right. They're going to distract from it. 
when you're talking about that inspirational moment that drove you, that you're, the, the dramatic thing that you want to have see come about, in some games, right, you, that's the, the, the achievement of the game and the session. Sure. Or the game and the campaign. How many different ways can that scene turn out is one of the ways that I ask myself mm. kind of how what the scope of a game is and how mm. many situations, right? So if the thing is insomniac fighter pilots flying sorties over Germany, and the point is we get them into, into the air where they're, they're trying to keep their eyes open and bomb the right target and not hurt people that they don't want to hurt. Mm. How many times can that situation play out? Mm -hmm. There's a couple of great games, and I'm sure you have a better example of this off the top of your head than I will, but of games in which the situation plays out essentially once and you're done. Mm -hmm. And it's one really rich situation. Again, a lot of LARPs do that. And you can play it again. Mm -hmm. But a lot of, I think there are a lot of great LARPs doing that right now that are about, yeah. well, like the climb is sort of that, right? It's a very mm -hmm. specific situation and how it plays out, how it's resolved in that one um, and who lives and who dies. And it's not about the weeks after or the investigation into it's not about criminal prosecution <laughs> the mountain which is kind of like that too where it's like you're always going to get to the witch it's what happens when you get there and you're probably like the witch is almost always the witch ends up ends up being defeated um though that's not necessarily hard-coded but just the way that the characters are kind of pointed at it right what are the reveals along the way and how do the characters what do the characters do to each other is the question right the combination to me is the the situation of the mountain witch and what happens when they meet the witch and then the the trust the trust mechanic and the characters the way they're written create a situ create multiple layer uh, repeating situations almost mm -hmm. which is will you help this character when confronted with an ogre right will you help this character when confronted with an oni will you help in, or how will you help this character when confronted with a wall of fire mm. um and I, i'm sure it would be possible to play it for a very long time Mm -hmm. It starts to get. You got like, very fine grained. Yeah, yeah, and it gets very. I think, quite, and then the, the, that's where we we can start pushing up against the premise situation. Just as how big is this mountain? But, right. Yeah. But still, if you're willing to say, "Oh, it's the it's the mountain that holds up the sky," you go, mm -hmm. "Okay, great." So we're going to play this, you know, for ten weeks. Right. Or like part of this is going to to a hell, and you have right. to get through the hell, and then when then you get back to the to right. the mountain or whatever. Right. That's you get great. metaphysical yeah. with it. Yeah. And that accordion nature, I think, is a big thing to think about in terms of like how many times is a game not necessarily meant to be played, but mm -hmm. yeah, how is different each time you play well, it just like you say yeah correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like this is a, a similar set of of concepts that uh always never now definitely plays with right you you have a bounded set of characters and of this kind of uh set of plot points that are chained but not not in a necessary order always never now is an example of my <clears throat> trying to point and then wave the characters towards the center of a setting there are only two endings to the game that are written mm -hmm. in and obviously you can go off the rails and it still works great because it's based on lady blackbird so there's lots of stuff sure. to expand which is also, again, part of the, the beauty of picking the right system for the right kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Always Never Now is built so that the characters are coming back out of retirement for one last job. Okay, we have a, we've seen movies. We have a vague idea yeah. what that's like. And they're trying to find somebody who's missing. So as long as that person is missing and that the players continue to buy into the premise, the GM can take them all over the world because it gets them one step closer. But which step and in what order and then the, the, the breadcrumbs are given to the GM in a bag. Mm -hmm. So as long as the players get a breadcrumb every you know X feet so that they can stay on the story say on the mission, mm. the, the GM can put different breadcrumbs out depending on which characters are in play, what the players want to hear. If the players do great, you can be like, well, here's a ton of breadcrumbs. Right. And the players can use that information to change what direction they go in. Uh, it's meant to be kind of a riff on situation and the notion that by putting those limits on it, it makes it much easier to change all the discs in the jukebox, if you will. Sure. And that makes me think of another design decision you can make, which is a bigger one, which probably we could talk about some other time of uh, how do you end a game? Oh, yeah. Right? But under the idea of how do you end a game, does your game have discrete ending points, whether mechanically or fictionally driven or, or structurally with how characters work or whatever? Or is it a open-ended play until you're done playing? Or is there somewhere in the middle? Or if there are ending points, how are they triggered? How do they come about? Because I feel like 
coding and endings generally requires you to address how to the, the scope of the situation, if nothing else. That's a great point. Yeah, I agree completely. Because like if, if the Mountain Witch was play until a character betrays another character, that's a totally different progression of the game. And it's not a hard thing. It's not like play until you kill the witch. But the, the way that, that the, the structure of pacing is presented to the GM is like, here are the different stages of play. And the last one is confronting the witch. Right. Right. Play, play until you've resolved the situation of confronting the witch. Right. Is the kind of least sexy way to say what it's, or at least provocative and compelling mm-hmm. way to say what the game is actually about because it's so well written that it obviously doesn't come across that way yeah. but the whole premise is that we know that when we kind of the witch we're right at the end we're very near the end right and yeah. that's when everything has come to a head yeah right and then that's when the the exploration of trust gains a resolution thanks for listening if you've enjoyed this episode or any of our previous episodes please consider supporting us at patreon so that we can continue to bring these episodes to you you can find Will on Patreon at patreon.com slash wordwill. And you can find Nathan on Patreon at patreon.com slash ndpauletta. You can find all of our older episodes, as well as everything else Design Games Podcast related, at designgamespodcast.com. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...